Whites. Yes. Welcome back to Sounds About White, where every week we discuss white people's shit. I'm sorry. I bet Maria would like to say that a lot nicer than me. Honestly, my week has been filled with white people shit, so I'm okay with it. I don't think there's another way to say it. All right. Yes, that's what we do once a week. <laughs> yes. Um, and we usually start with dishonorable white woman. I don't know if there's any in particular. Oh, I've got one. Okay. okay so to be fair. I do not 110% know whether or not this person is white. And I will explain. Okay. So my school district releases a report annually about basically all of the cases which were investigated by a specific team that happened throughout the year. They can range anything between like, I don't know, someone is money laundering to sexual harassment or assault to theft or criminals done outside of the school. Entire, it's an entire report. It is the messiest, most entertaining report to read. About staff or just the whole yes. school system? Okay. Employees. About okay. every single employee of the district. It's okay. amazing. <laughs> um, and so with that being said, I have been – it's some pretty heavy reading as in that it's there are many of them and they're very long. I have gotten to 2018, I think. And in one of them, I read about a woman and I'm going to read this report. Okay. I have no proof that this person is white. However, an investigation determined that a special education teacher at an elementary school posted on her personal blog that she heard one of her students state that she was sexually assaulted by a relative. The investigators found that the teacher failed to notify DCFS about the alleged sexual abuse as she was required to do under the district's mandated reporter policy which provides that mandated reporters such as herself must immediately call, as we know, Child Protective Services when they have a reasonable cause to believe that a child may have been abused. In this case, the teacher believed that she probably would have told her principal about the sexual abuse reported by the student, but she did not realize she was supposed to call Child Protective Services. The teacher clearly lacked a sufficient understanding of the policy, which she failed to follow. Now, the part I want to highlight is that she had a personal blog and I didn't actually include the part on it, but they actually go into it further. A teacher had a special education teacher had an entire online available to see by anyone personalized blog where they included pictures and stories and student work of students. And in on this blog, she also included, yeah, and my student disclosed to me that they were sexually assaulted by or abused by an uncle. So she wrote like, oh, my poor kids, woe is them. But then, as we saw, did not call Child Protective Services. And when I immediately saw it, I said, this sounds like the whitest shit I've ever seen. Because, of course, you would write about your poor, sad students and their poor, sad lives on a blog for your own personal gain. But then not even follow the appropriate fucking avenues to then help these students have a better life. Oh, my goodness. I saw this and I and I texted my friend and we were both like, yeah, that was absolutely a white woman. Yeah, the aesthetic. I can like imagine the aesthetic of the blog. And I've seen so many white female teachers posting about like post the pictures about students, details about students. And it boggles my mind because like as a therapist, as a social worker, 
I have to be very protective of what information gets shared. And it's a little different for teachers, but it still feels like that is unethical. I don't know what the legal aspect of things are. Other people's kids, other people's traumas. And it's very clear where you work. Putting everybody's life out there, like you said, for your personal gain. Right. It's not your story to tell. Right. And it also gives like big to me, like the people who go to different countries and take pictures with the children. Yes. That's the energy that it gave. Yeah. So. And I need to call myself in on that because I did that when I was in Ghana and El Salvador. In El Salvador, I like knew the kids and still know the kids. But either way, it was unconsensual posting pictures and then getting all these comments about like, oh, they're so cute. And like, and it, it feeds into this white missionary persona, right? Of like people assuming I'm a good person because I'm like hanging out with these brown kids or these black kids. I think it can be really difficult when you know children in such a close capacity to maintain a sort of boundaries. It's like they do so many cute things. Yes, they are cute. And, Kids are cute. And you and you care so deeply about them and you want to document that because it was cute. But I personally don't I, – I did not like to post the people who I babysat their kids' faces on my social media – because I just thought that, that was inappropriate. I might have had pictures of them and I might have shared them among my friends privately. And I also think that that was probably a breach of privacy in itself. You know, you're taking pictures of someone else's children without their permission, I think. Or even, you know, I you look at people who share pictures of their kids online. Yeah. They view that as, you know, there's, there's, there's so many whole different ethics. levels to yeah. it. Yeah. But I'm going to say that posting pictures of people without appropriate consent for your personal gain personal on a blog. public blog yep. is a problem. Yeah. And I cannot believe that you did not think that was. I see a lot of people post like their kid, like pictures of their kids very briefly, not a lot on their social media's accounts, which are typically um, a restricted following. I don't really like that. I don't think it's appropriate little bit different because it's like there there are just levels to the inappropriateness yeah Yeah. this was a pretty pretty substantial level using someone's trauma for your personal gain i do feel like that happens even well obviously this was a well-meaning probably white woman teacher maybe not well-meaning you see but like you say well-meaning but then i think about how she didn't report the case to cps what really grinded my gears, which I don't think is how you say it, whatever, was the amount of teachers that say those things to me. When I read that, I didn't cackle to the point yeah. where like, I think this is funny, but I kind of screamed and then it's like, yeah, this is exactly what you motherfuckers say. Yeah. <laughs> like y'all always been here and you refuse to report things to CPS. And like, I love how they wrote in there that they're like, yeah, um, there's information that she should have known and she did not do it. Kind of coming in from the field of social work. And I feel like I'm, I've seen the other extreme and I've been the other extreme where, especially as a young social worker, they're like, if there's ever any suspicion, and I'm mostly talking about physical abuse and wide variety of answers in the state of Maryland about what should be reported and what shouldn't be reported about like corporal punishment is legal but then if it left a mark there's marks so they use objects and then even when you call 
and there's a mix. But I, I just wanted to point out too that as a white social worker, I feel like there's times where I have overreported when it was it was an assumption of things that were like because corporal punishment is legal within the state of Maryland, things that fell within that. But like me being hyper nervous and worried and wanting to make sure that I'm reporting every little thing just in case. I noticed that early on as a therapist, and I saw it with teachers too, where a kid coming in, having accidents, using any little signal of like, oh, this kid has dirt under their nails or they have an odor to them. And like the automatic assumption that there must be abuse and especially if it's black and brown, parents involved, especially if they're low income. And then the, the, the way that the other extreme, but your example is sexual abuse. And that is very cut and dry. But like, I will say that, I will say that Maria, right, you're absolutely right. But there are so many times when I, I'm almost certain a teacher, a child has reported to someone sexual abuse in the past. And I, and I had to tell some educator who was like, well, let's talk to the parent. And it was about someone who didn't, who may or may not have lived at home in the home. So they were like, well, they may already know and they may have already dealt with it. And I was like, maybe, but I'm not going to assume. You have a job, you have a responsibility. And if it has been dealt with, then when the DCFS hotline reporter or whatever, CPS, whoever receives a report, they will know that it has been addressed. But you, by you relying they there's such an insistence to rely on the parents to give the information so there, there's just like we'll we'll talk to them and it's like no because there are way too many cases in which they do know that their brother did something wrong yeah and they want to protect their brother so absolutely not i know what my job is as a mandated reporter is to make sure that i'm reporting if i suspect and yes there is the added part of making sure that i am checking my biases against any groups of people However, you know, you need to be able to check your biases, but also do your job. Yeah. I mean, I think sexual abuse in particular, any suspicion of it, right, has to be taken very seriously. I mean, all abuse is is abuse, but especially when there's... Yeah. I mean, again, sexual assault across the lifespan is awful, but with kids... Well, I I feel like... It sounds really awkward, and so you feel like you have to tiptoe around it, but it's like, you know sexual abuse is sexual abuse, but there are so many, like, landmines that you're kind of creeping around in when it comes to being physical or emotional abuse or neglect, where it's like, is this child being intentionally neglected, or is it inadequate um, housing in that there is a family issue, and we could provide this service to this family because they need something, because I don't want to call and- You are doing the best you can and you're just really down on your luck for one reason or another. And now I have added an extra thing, but also there's the aspect of what you were saying. It's like the things between corporal punishment. It is okay to spank your child in such and such state, but you cannot use an object. You cannot leave a mark. It cannot be to some degree excessive and however that is outlined, but sexual abuse is sexual abuse. Um, There, there's no amount of, well, if it was the uncle who is 13 and she's six, then it's okay. No, no, it's, 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 it's still wrong. Um, 
No. Yeah. 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 It's a, it is really tough. And I'm just thinking about the ways that our systems are not designed or set up to support victims or survivors of sexual abuse and also not set up to educate properly about consent, about safety, about body. Yeah, there's just a lot of systemic failures. I think in particular, we know that sexual abuse happens in all communities, unfortunately, but it's particularly tough when This is kind of a a side note or comment, but Megan the Stallion, I didn't feel comfortable telling the police that I was shot because I didn't want them to then in turn shoot this black man who had just shot me. And again, so where does Megan get justice? Because the police aren't going to give it. And the person who shot her also isn't going to give it. And the ways that yeah, if you I have all these layers lot, of marginalization, but, um, um, you have less and less protection, incident, like, even from the people who are supposed to serve you. to make me feel uncomfortable, especially if they're a person of color or they are black, it's like, I don't want for this to be that, but you have made me feel uncomfortable. For my example, there is a person at work who keeps inviting me to watch movies with them. I have made it clear that I have a whole husband and I have a whole baby and I am not interested in going on a date with you. But also from my understanding, this person has a type of disability that I think makes it difficult for them to commit that information to memory. And they are not doing it with the intent to be harassing. Their intent is not to harass They have not committed that to memory. They do not understand Mm -hmm. that I am saying no for this reason. And I know that if I say something about it, that it's very likely this person is going to be terminated because this is not the first time that they have had a miscommunication with another person at the job. So I can recognize the function of the behavior, but also can you please stop inviting me to dinner? And it it isn't that this person does this every day. It isn't that it's even done on a weekly basis. I wouldn't even honestly say monthly. But there is an obvious intent when I see this person that I know they have said it enough times um, that I know that the intent is there, even if it isn't maliciously being done. Because because on another capacity, you have the people, men specifically, who can't be told no, who are asking you again and again and again. And I I know that that's not the intention. And I would like to be left alone, but I also know... That if I say yeah. something, this person's going to get reprimanded to a point which could be harmful to their employment. And I don't want to bring that about them in a way which I think is unfair. But also, can I exist without you inviting me to dinner? Yes. Yes. And I think that gets back into like the the, the like layers of vulnerability and also the ways in which people have been socialized, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is a learned behavior of like kind of persistently asking and asking. And we see it in in movies (laughs) all the time or shows, especially, I don't don't know what you think, but like definitely in the 90s and the 2000s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
I'm actually glad you said it because shameless plug below the dot podcast, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Um, but I actually said on there, direct quote, I was like, JT says he's going for an older woman this year and he's not, he's basically not taking no, even though she explicitly, explicitly told him no, he's not going to give up. And I said, I'm pretty sure there's a think piece on this being a problem, but I'm not going into it right now. And here's that think piece. I think Degrassi is a perfect example. It's tough when you rewatch shows that are like in some ways so classic and they're nostalgic from the 90s or 2000s. And then you're also hit with like, wow, things were even more problematic then than they are now. But I will say that one thing that's great about Degrassi is that, yeah, there are a lot of things that didn't age well. But there's a lot of stuff that was ahead of its time that I always say that gets on everyone's nerves. Okay. Um, they ha- they have a lot of conversations. And some of the things I think are intentionally problematic so that I think their aim was to encourage discussion. So if you're watching the show with your parent, you'll see these things and you're mm. having the conversations that you may not have otherwise have had or you're seeing the conversations be had. Yeah. Because there's one, pl- one storyline that we haven't covered yet where um, – they're being racist towards a girl from, I want to say, Iraq, who absolutely wore a hijab and was Muslim. And they're being racist towards her. And then they're explaining why some, different perspectives of it. So you get different takes on it. And people are like, that's racist. And another person says they're racist perspective. Um, and maybe you don't have the privilege to have these educated conversations in a safe space. So even though someone says or does something that doesn't age well or is problematic for one way or another, it's done with the intention. And even if it isn't done with the intention, it's still the whole show is overall is to evoke conversation. Yeah. So you can, it's, it's a different purpose. Yeah. Even if it is, even if it doesn't age well, which they do have a lot of things that don't age well, the show itself serves a purpose to have those conversations. Yeah, which I think is different than I'm really trying to think of a different show right now, but I'm just thinking of Girlfriends, which is a show about four black women. So I'm there's like a lot of beautiful things about the show from the 90s or 2000s, but there's a lot of homophobic and transphobic jokes that come up that mm-hmm. it's it is done. And I know it's done on plenty of white shows. So I'm like really trying to think, of other shows um you can tell when it's like this is included to offer a teachable moment because is Degrassi the two was it after 9-11 maybe yeah yeah that was, that was absolutely what it was yeah. yeah so that was that was their response to 9-11 episode yeah so like I think some of that was teachable moment but you also have some things um such as like JT again pretending to be gay so that a girl would not Um, would leave him alone and it's like well him perpetuating the stereotypes of being gay was not okay and he didn't really get called out on it and I don't like there wasn't really I'm like was I don't know I don't think that that was done for an intention of education but also I feel like it's very indicative of what a seventh grade boy would be doing as well I mean the sad part is in some ways I've been around Gen Zers that I'm like, oh my gosh, you're so inspiring. So different. Right. So and then, different. But then there are some that still would do stuff like that. 
But I will say that because what we're talking about is that when it came out was when I was in seventh grade. And when I was in seventh grade, millennials were absolutely doing oh, that. Oh, yes. So whether or not a Gen Zer is doing that, that might not be a relevant storyline to when they come out with Degrassi next year. Mm-hmm. But anyway, any, this is not a Degrassi it- podcast. The point <laughs> here is that yeah. there are many things in Degrassi that reflect the things that we are saying on this podcast. Yeah. So really, there should be a crossover. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crossover. So check it out. Um, I'm still on This Is Us. I'm still chugging through. And I'm trying to think of what else I've I've really just been watching This Is Us because they're long episodes. I love This Is Us. It is right. You know what I loved? I loved it early on. The last season, I think the last two seasons they could have kept. Yeah. I know a lot of people are super into it and they're they cry once a week. That is not me and my mother. Yeah. On on Twitter, I have noticed that like there's the oh like that was so sad or whatever or like people talking about their tears and it's sad, but I'm not. There's been only few moments where I'm actually crying and I'm trying to remember recently. What, one of I think ones. it's funny to look at my tweets versus like other normal people watching it, <laughs> and it's like they're they're polar opposites. Like I'm like could have kept it. That was stupid, and everyone else is like, oh my god, I can't believe they named it that. And I'm just like, mm, okay, yeah. I mean, there's only so much sentimentalness that you can bring to the table until it's yeah. But I, I personally, I think we were talking about it earlier. I really liked Randall's storyline. Um, not every storyline. Some of them, I, they did a lot with him. But I did appreciate his mental health journey and storyline. And as it impacted not just him, but also his relationship with his wife. Um, yep. That was that was my favorite storyline, I think, of all things in that show. So yeah. I mean, it's also not the point of this episode, but but I mean, I do. Th- in some ways, it's relevant because it shows. Um, I don't know. He, he there was a tweet about it, um, but he really was carrying the family in, and and maybe okay. Again, going not to unpack all of Randall's issues, but he didn't have to be care- like he he took on a lot that eventually he really had to put down. But there was a way that, like, his mom, the family was relying on him. And as the only black member of the family, I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Interesting. It's always interesting to me because I don't think everyone realizes how much there's, I think that I may have seen it referred to as, like, a black tax. But it's, like, how much black adults are depended upon in their families in ways which traditionally white people don't understand again this is not my way of saying that white people are not dependent on in their families but my god you are in the minority not the not the expectation and a lot of the times if you're in say a corporate setting and you're among other people who are make high earning individuals they do not have the same issue with their family depending on them for money they don't and they look at you like you're crazy and they say why don't you just tell them no but for black people, you know, we kind of understand that, oh, I can't tell them no, because then they'll, they won't have what they need and they need it. And they, they're they like, yeah, oh, well, then they won't have it. Um, There's definitely a different approach. So it's very interesting that you highlight that he's the black one in the family and he's basically carrying them on his back. That is a very typical black people issue that I don't think everyone else recognizes is how common it is. Yeah. 
I just got so I'm on an episode where Kevin's like, well, I'm the one paying for mom's blah, blah, blah because of my movie star salary or whatever. And he kind of throws a dig at at Randall, who had a mansion. It's not like Randall's over here without money. He's just currently a city council member and like, yeah, probably isn't making as much as a movie star. There's a dynamic there, right, that to understand the layers to systemic injustice is to understand like where that comes from. Because white families, like there's the statistics about how much more wealth white families have um, versus black families. And it's through no fault of black families that that is the case, right? But it does it does add pressure. Right. People like a reverse, right? As opposed to in white families, um, white middle class and upper class families, there's a sense of like, okay, the the older people are able to help you financially versus the reverse. Yeah. And I also don't think that it's really, even if we were making the same, my 100K is not your 100K because I probably come with more debt and I also come with more people who are dependent upon me. Yep. So this idea that all things are equal, they are not. Yeah. They are not. Yeah. The pe- people see my, people see my high earning and they, for whatever reason, don't see my student loan debt. They see my high earning check and therefore they see dollar bills and then they make you really uncomfortable. Not me personally. I think I'm very fortunate that I do not have a family depending on me to that degree. So I I don't want to perpetuate any lies in which I do, but I am close to many people who are depended on by their families. And yeah, those families see, well, you've got this big, high, fancy job. Why don't you have it? And it's like, I have a mortgage. I have a daughter. I am paying um, this person's student loans. I am paying my own student loans. I'm in school. But they see it as you've got it and I don't. Yeah. And so I I could have it or they, you know, and it, it just happens so much. Yeah. Well, and I do think that it, it is focusing on the person that you have contact with, right, as opposed to focusing on on this podcast, right? The root cause is, is white supremacy and Uh, anti-black racism. And so really looking at what are the ways that the system is not providing, right, Um, the necessary supports. And when you were talking to, I just, like, it came to my, like, interest rates, right, or, like, home appraisals or, like, all these ways that even if things are, quote, unquote, equal people or, or job applications, like, Rate, there are racial inequities. Right. It's there's so there's so much that people don't account for. Yeah. Your hundred K is not my hundred K, even if our earnings are equal. Yeah. I'm gonna move into this neighborhood. They're going to give me a high interest rate because they're going to say that my credit is lower because of this reason, that reason, this reason. Um, I'm going to pay more for home insurance because I'm in this neighbor, car insurance because I'm in this neighborhood. A number of things. I'm going to pay highest interest rates on my loans because when I applied to go to school, they trusted me less, even though we were both 18 and we we're both people who had nothing to our name. Mm-hmm. They trusted me less. They already gave you more scholarships. There are so many things that I think people just do not take into account yeah. when they, it's like, well, and, and that's me saying if all things are equal. Yeah. My pay is not your pay. Yeah. I didn't have access to whatever you had access to, which gave me access to a job, which gave me the pay that I needed. I haven't been told that that the world is your oyster and that you can have whatever you want. 
So I'm not going to ask for a raise or feel entitled to it because that's truly what we were conditioned to be. Yeah. And the other thing that's coming up for me is that, so I recently reached out to someone who works with white folks around wealth and money and reparations and um, paying land tax to indigenous people. And I was reminded they're doing amazing work. Their name is uh, Morgan Curtis um, and check her out on Instagram and on the web. And I was reminded because I reached out like being curious and was reminded that like there are levels to wealth. And so I was not like she really works with like the top 10 percent um, those who have inherited or, or whose net worth is in the top 10% in your age bracket. Um, and so when you were talking about like family not understanding that you don't have it, um, it reminded me of how wealth is like, it may sound like a lot, like 100,000 may sound like a lot and it is a lot compared to those that have like 20,000, 30,000 or less. Um, But at the same time, like you were pointing out, like there's all these bills and everything is so expensive that it really doesn't go as far. And there's so many people, the top, right, like 10% or 1% or whoever it is, hold such an exorbitant amount of wealth. I don't know. It's it's hard because it's like you really got to be mad and angry at those who are hoarding extreme amounts of wealth. And it's also like survival, so like asking those who who you have in your life. What I've noticed with that dynamic, my partner has it with his mom, and it's been a new dynamic for me because um, I grew up with two parents who are teachers, and so both were working, both weren't getting paid a ton of money, but there's a level that like their parents, um, both my grandfathers were in the military and like got, you know, were able to retire at a relatively young age um, because of that. But they also, again, everything's not equal because they were in the military. They got into the officers. Um, tr- I don't know the military lingo. Apologize if you're a military person and you're like, what the hell is she talking about? But like sure don't know. they did ROTC like in college, which again, like I've been reading my grandfather wrote a book just for the family. It's not like a published thing, but he talks about going to Texas A&M University. And I've, I've been trying to understand my family history of like what was going on at that time during those years. Like were black folks admitted to Texas A&M University? Were women admitted to Texas A&M University right. at that time? And so, and then even going into the military for both my grandfather's Um, they went through like this officer's training um, and then they were able to, instead of just going right to enlisted, which is, I'm assuming the most people who end up harmed or directly on the front lines are those that are enlisting and not necessarily officers. And I don't, that's not something I can statistically, but just from my assumption that you're going to be on the ground or in more of harm's way those that don't have access to higher education. And and then the hierarchy piece. My one grandfather was white nonsense this past weekend because I wore a Black Lives Matter shirt. Oh, I know he was mad. I know yeah. he was mad. And the sad part that he was mad and we had just been to church. 
So it was like, this is you on your best behavior after just being, you know, in church, praying, the closest you come, and then this is how you're acting. But both of my grandfathers will reference um, Black folks in the military that were significant parts of their um, experience and that they, I don't know the full stories, but it sounds like potentially life-saving. They they look at it as like, well, everything's equal, right? Because we were all in this fight together. And it's not equal in the military because it's a hierarchy. And there's racial dynamics and economic dynamics and class and gender and sexuality. Um, but even outside of it, it's all of it's relevant. And that's a long-ass way to say that we cannot be colorblind and it is an unfair burden put on poor white folks too, but like a lot of black and brown young people who are trying to work backwards with the building generational wealth as opposed to inheriting it, even the slightest yes. bit. Right? Yeah, because I, you, yeah. you say those things about my 100K isn't your 100K and you're right. So many people are also inheriting. Yes. It's like we're working in different directions here. Yes. And I want to be clear, even in really small ways. So like my credit score. So my parents, they don't know when they're going to be able to retire. And so I do worry about them. They've told us from a young age that they will probably not have anything to pass down uh, to us, which is perfectly fine. But my credit score was positively impacted because of their credit score. And like, I had a shit ton of student loans, but they were able to co-sign. They were able to co-sign so much because of their credit history. So e even if it's not in the tangible, there's a lot of other ways to... To contribute or build a better foundation. Yes. And like, also with that being said, you touched on something that like, it was a minute ago, that like you talked about were Black people and women admitted to your institution that was just last generation those are our parents so that means that you went to school and everyone says how big the bachelor degree was but you lived in a town that wasn't admitting people who looked like you to their institution so you either had to a go further and put yourself further into debt to make it to that institution and at risk of whatever it was or just pass on the instance of going to college and so even it's just like you weren't given certain opportunities depending on where you were to go. And like there's that, right, of like the actual literal admittance. And then there's the whole legacy that is ongoing of, okay, you're allowed here, but you're not welcome here. Right. Um, or we're going to tolerate you, but we're not going to embrace you or meet your needs. So there's there's so many layers and there's obviously we've talked on in the early episodes on the show of uh, experiences that you've had, Emma, uh, at, in institutions of higher learning. I almost want to call them out, but I won't. Yeah, but just go back to the episode. I think it was like first couple episodes. There's there's a lot to be said. And my grandfather said that he felt angry anxious and stressed by seeing my shirt um imagine being so triggered so triggered and he wasn't able to confront me directly he had to like in front of me but to the side tell my grandmother can you please talk to your granddaughter 
And then using, and this is where I think it's a good example because sometimes it's like, oh, well, white folks, you know, they're just like super racist and have like never wanted anything to do with black folks. But my grandparents were talking about like, no, we've sent our kids to like all black or all Asian or our kids have been the token white people in their classrooms growing up at a time where that. That was very uncommon and people were absolutely removing their kids from those settings. Yeah. So it's like, yes, and that does not exempt you from being racist because we are all conditions within these systems. And so I just I found it really interesting that like, yes, that's true, because, yes, people are still fighting to remove their kids from classroom settings if there's too many black students or too many brown students. And at the same time, like you can still be hella racist and be the token white person or you can still be hella racist And your kid be the token white person. Right. It's like no one is absolved of responsibility to try to do better. Because I mentioned to my granddad, who's like, well, our people came through Canada into like Michigan or wherever. And I was like, that's that's true for some of your people. And some of your people have gone back to the 1600s in Rhode Island. And, you know, I don't know the full details of like what their status was. I know some of them were definitely prominent figures and had to be involved in the genocide of Native people in this land. And there's like a a rational side of like, yes, that's true. And also like, you know, it is what it is kind of thing. And so uh, just as a, a call to like, land tax, right? We all live on indigenous land in the United States and especially for descendants of white immigrants, of European colonizers. And I need to work on this too because my budget's been a little bit constrained the past couple months, but really putting my money where my mouth is around making sure that indigenous people are uh, being supported as well as uh, reparations being paid to black people and specifically african-american people on that note i just want to say um people have been talking what should i do to celebrate the one black person i know for juneteenth um (laughs) my perspective is leave them alone should i know well what if i know i was thinking no could i just know (laughs) leave them alone yeah definitely and National Association of Social Workers in Maryland is offering a Juneteenth Freedom Conference. I'm sure there's plenty of other opportunities uh, nationwide. There's also probably plenty of celebrations. We don't need to go as white folks, but again, putting money where our mouth is, paying for training opportunities or donating to celebrations, but not needing to center ourselves or even be part of activities unless we are actively and explicitly invited in. And maybe that's something we'll talk about. I think we've talked before, but we'll talk about again, like white folks' social cues around how close we are uh, to black folks and the times we misread, like someone's an acquaintance or someone we talked to one time and there's this assumption of like, oh, we're best friends. That's not your friend. No. They haven't invited you to their home or around their regular core group of friends. That's not your friend. Yeah. And so being very clear, too, about who we're even considering as that one Black friend. And on that note, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, If anybody wants to send donations or um, funds 
Emma's way. Uh, we will get on posting ways to do that. But also, please don't do that for Juneteenth. Leave me alone on Juneteenth. If you are not black, I do not want to hear from you on Juneteenth. <laughs> do not. Do not do it for Juneteenth. But also donate to your local mutual aid funds and stay out of black people's way. (laughs) On that note, thank you so much for listening. This is Sounds About White. I'm Maria. And I'm Emma Nelson. Thank you for listening.